Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that I just got was that fluorography film. <laughs> I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. It's the x-ray film that's used uh, 35 millimeter double perforated x-ray film. Um, you can get it as washi F. Um, and uh, so I just got a bunch so of that. What makes you want to be a fluorographer? Um, I just, I, I, it's, it, it's the curious in me. Um, one of the things. It's cheap. It's cheap. <laughs> it was cheap. It's 200 feet for 50 bucks, 200 feet for 45 bucks. Um, but the, um, I shoot a lot of pinhole and pinhole is an otherworldly picture by nature, right? By the very look of it. It's an otherworldly view of the world. And this, I always think adds to it, uh, expired film adds to it. Um, Ethan, what what film that is what off label film is film that you find um, most compelling? Uh, paper, photographic paper. Okay. I've been, you know, I grew up in New York. B and H and Adorama were right there. In fact, my stepmom used to work across the street from Adorama, so like we could get cinema films or really any. I used to buy rolls of hundred feet of uh, T Max and Triax for. 19 to 21 dollars like that that has always been available what i wish was available okay. is high speed photographic paper for photo booths which i can't get my hands on but uh shooting okay. paper as film is is what i'm into these days okay yeah, yeah that's can we cool. make can we make high speed paper what what are the ingredients uh, it's kind of like paper. a time and crystal growth issue um but no, we cannot. Not without a, 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 a I think Galaxy space. Direct Pause. Yeah, that was the exist. last. Yeah, <laughs> that was the last one they did. That was. Yeah, and um, and it wasn't yeah. direct positive. It was a negative <laughs> paper. Yeah, but it was. Um, and it's and that's what seven or eight years ago. Um, yeah. that had its had its run through. Joe, what do you shoot? What do you like shooting that is off label? Uh. I'm kind of like with Ethan, I like paper. I mean, mm -hmm. I've been shooting paper negatives for several decades, since the mid-90s, maybe? Mm -hmm. And I like Arista Grade 2 RC paper. Oh, okay. Uh, Fixed-grade okay. contrast, resin-coated. Yeah. Um, my first, uh, my second, my first darkroom experience was making a... Um, uh, making a, uh, oh, what do you call it, uh, an oatmeal box uh, pinhole, and we shot paper. You know, we cut round negatives and yep. shot paper um, and then contact printed it. Um, that was that was my first uh, darkroom experience. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, I, I, like, I, I like paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I've been shooting a lot of Eastman 5222, um, I think that that's good. I had a bulk roll of Ilford, I, and I can't tell whether it was P3 or P4, but it, it's a surveillance film. And um, it was 400 speed surveillance film that was uh, grainy as hell. Um, uh, but it, I really loved uh, the look of that. 
I talked about fluorography. Yeah, the X-ray film that you can get. It's Kodak fluorography or something like that. Um, and um, I, I haven't shot any of that um, yet, but I love you know the the movie, uh, the cinema film. Uh, I'm just all over that type of thing. Now, I also like Tri-X and, and um, uh, Ultrafine, back when Ultrafine Extreme was available. Um, I shot a ton of that in 120. And that's the one thing that I don't like, is that I can't go out and get a bulk roll of 120. I wish I could. Oh, I wish you I can. could. You can. It's called 70 millimeter. Yeah, but then you got to cut it. You got to... You know, you got to run through a slicer and it's got to be, um, and then you get sprockets on one side or you get partial sprockets on both sides. Not necessarily um, what I'm looking for. So uh, what do you guys say we start uh, homemade camera? Let's do it. I think this is the right overlay. Yeah, there we go. All right. Do, 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 do. Okay. Um, hey. Welcome. We've got a special guest today, your friend and mine, Joe Van Cleave. Hey, Joe. Um, you can find Joe on his YouTube channel by searching Joe Van Cleave. If you are into cameras, typewriters, stationery, uh, astronomy, yeah. trips around Albuquerque, <laughs> Joe is your guy. Um, yeah, so um, I think a lot of the listeners to this podcast probably have seen a little bit of Joe's videos, right? If they've been following anything that I do, uh, Joe and I usually work together every Tuesday if, if we can, playing with some stuff. Um, but we'll do like a quick intro, who Joe is and uh, how he got into photography, that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, see, see what he is up to. That work for you guys? Absolutely. All right, Joe, uh, who are you? Where are you from? Well, I am an Albuquerque native. Um, my great-grandfather came to Albuquerque in 1903 on a covered wagon and ranched what is now part of the city. My dad was a World War II vet, and afterwards he spent his career in the uh, nuclear weapons field out at Kirtland Air Force Base. Joe's pointing. Yes. That way, yes, which is southeast, where they fly the nukes. <laughs> Jacksonville, but no, Jacksonville. So no, he's pointing <laughs> about ten blocks away to the uh, nuclear air force base. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when I was growing up in the sixties and seventies in Albuquerque, every kid on the school ground knew that there was a secret underground base with nuclear weapons because their dads worked there and they were talking about it. But that was kind of my background, right, growing up there. I went in the Navy in the late 70s, learned some electronics, video um, technology, and then spent about a decade working as a, a consumer electronics technician in Albuquerque and also dabbling in photography. Um, back then in the early 90s, I got married. We got a house, and I had room to build a darkroom. And that's kind of what changed my whole photography uh, being able to walk out to a dark room at any time being able to load up a camera with paper or film being able to process it whenever i want to 
And that led down the road to being able to make cameras. That's that's the kind of the secret. My story was having a dark room. Um, I spent a lot of time building pinhole cameras in the late 90s up through the aughts, and I was heavily involved in the F-295 pinhole discussion forum that was happening right. around mid to late aughts. Tom Persinger out of Pittsburgh ran that website, that blog. It's technically still online, but it, nobody's on it anymore. Um, yeah, so I posted a lot of camera making projects on that uh, discussion forum. And then sometime in the mid-teens, I started a YouTube channel and initially showing some of my homemade cameras. So my earliest videos were really about some of the cameras I made. And that's how I started. Hey, can, can I ask what, what you uh, do for work, Joe? Yeah, so I... So I jokingly tell people that I interface between software systems that aren't designed to talk to each other. <laughs> and that's totally not really what I do, but I work in the semiconductor manufacturing arena. I work in a fab, a chip fab, and I maintain equipment that makes the, the semiconductors. So what I, what I would add here is this is an interesting thing about Joe that you would never know from his YouTube channel. Uh, Joe builds like some real uh, low-tech and beautifully simple stuff, but Joe fixes the machines that make your computer processor all day. <laughs> um, so you come to work with a big hammer? <laughs> no. No, no. You have to have a very delicate hammer. Joe works in a bunny suit. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah. So uh, I, I want to ask you about, you, you started building cameras. Um, um, was that after the darkroom came along? Um, it was, yeah, a couple years after. Okay. When I initially started, before we got married, I, was, I had a two-bedroom apartment, and my spare bedroom was a darkroom I made. And I had literally an old table stuck in the closet, a couple trays, a Bessler enlarger, and I would walk the prints over out to the bathroom and rinse them in the bathtub, you know, when I was done mm -hmm. processing. But when I got, we got married and got a house, I built a darkroom. And I soon afterwards started thinking I'd like to try pinhole photography because I had been reading about it. And I wanted to make a box camera. And I think the first camera I built was I went to Hobby Lobby or some craft store. And I got one of these cardboard craft boxes. Yeah. You know, done. And just... Put a piece of four by five paper in, maybe some black craft paper as a baffle, made uh -huh. a crew pinhole, a little pole shutter. And I was really amazed at the images, even though it was a poorly made pinhole. It was probably made from like high tin aluminum because it's not very yeah. thin and the hole wasn't very good. But yeah. Well, what, were you, what were you shooting at that point? What, like what, what kind of paper? No, what kind what kind oh. of cameras before you started making the pinholes? What were what were you shooting oh. at that point? Were you shooting four by fives? Were you shooting thirty five? Yeah. I was shooting thirty five and medium format. So you'd have to go back in time to maybe nineteen seventy eight or seventy nine in Singapore. Me and a buddy 
we're on the USS Constellation, the Connie, which is now razor blades. But we walk into a camera store in Singapore. We're shopping for camera gear. My buddy Ski, hi Paul, uh, he buys a Nikon system. I buy a Minolta SRT 101 was my uh -huh. first serious camera. And then this big European looking guy in a black suit walks into the camera store and he looks at us and he says, me, Russian. And we figured he was a KGB guy and he probably knew we were American sailors and all that. Sure. That's my funny little Singapore story. I had that Minolta system for years. I ended up replacing it with an X370. Uh, sure. And I was basically shooting Minolta glass, um, black and white mostly. Um, I got a Ronica ETRS sometime mm -hmm. in the mid 80s. Still have it. And I really loved shooting medium format. I like that format. Uh, and I got a, an old speed graphic later on that I still have also shooting 4x5. But mostly medium format, 35mm. Kind of discovering for myself what street photography really is. But it really wasn't street photography in terms of people photography. It was mostly like urban documentarian kind of photography. Okay. That's what I enjoyed. I have a book of Joe's street photography, which is excellent, but involves no people. Oh, yeah. We live yeah. in a very non-pedestrian city. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. my second book, my second photo book. I was going through a bunch of pictures in my archive, and I started putting together these, quote, street pictures that I noticed didn't have any people in them. I started uh, thinking that was a theme. So I, I named the book Implied Presence. And um, okay, and that was it was interesting. Yeah, that's uh, I do the exact same thing. In fact, uh, I go through cities and wait for people to leave. I love the um, uh, the 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 human world without the humans in it. Um, so, uh, that all, that to me is need, something that I absolutely love. All you need to accomplish that is a long. Well, sure, yeah. <laughs> Which brings That's us something. to pinhole photography. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. I've done some of that in the, in the city. So, Joe, since I have known you, like I, I yeah. have seen your Minolta and Bronica cameras, and I've made you shoot with them once or twice mm -hmm. when I needed some test rolls. But, yeah. I mean, pretty much you, I, don't, I wouldn't say you disdain, but you, you at least askew uh regular film photography i have yeah. pretty much just seen you shoot paper i've i've found i guess the economics of film processing especially with color unless you want to do it at home yeah um the the lab that we have in albuquerque does a pretty good job but i think their film scanning on color film is not really great they're using like a flatbed kind of scanner for film and uh i just find the, if I give them uh, an SD card of of digital photos from my my Panasonic Micro Four Thirds camera, I get a better RA4 print from them <laughs> than if I was to give them film and let them process the film and print it. And mm -hmm. the additional cost of processing the film just ended up being, well, I, I can do it cheaper with only print the, the files I want. You know, in, in I color. don't think that this is actually the reason why you only shoot paper these days. And since I've met you, maybe not. I mean, part of it is time. 
I don't have as much time to do creative photography, just to go out and be a flaneur. That was our word this morning, is being a flaneur, right? Walking the streets with a camera. I don't do that as much anymore. And I, I really want to. Um, but Do you think that's because you are busy with work and family and such? Or do you think that's busy because, or that's, that you're too busy because you spend so much time building cameras. <laughs> Lately, I haven't really built too many cameras. I, mean, I have a, maybe this one here is the latest one I built last year, but I think it's that I have a YouTube channel and all my, my off time, I'm thinking about, you know, what to do with that YouTube channel. A lot of it is not photographically related. It's stuff like bloggers, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, so I find, I guess a lot of people during the COVID thing found they were challenged to be creative. And I think I was already in maybe a creative funk of some kind before COVID, but at least maybe not a funk, at least more like I was interested more in making things and shooting photos in the last couple of years. Um, yeah. And I guess every creative person goes through those ups and down cycles, right? Of You get interested in certain things and then you lose interest in other things and then you come back to the first thing. Right. I do have this desire, though, to really um, move my photography to some other level. I'm not sure what that means yet. But. Okay. Okay. So I just, uh, I, before before we go on, I had a, a really brief question. Isn't uh, chip making essentially large, a lot of it derived from photography? Yeah, it is. Um, so... Photolithography is is one of the primary technologies of being able to make chips, right? And they they use a what you think of it as a quartz plate that's a, that's a photographic positive. It's a slide, and it's it's coated with chrome metal circuit lines, circuit pattern. Right? And these chrome plates are called reticles, and they're about five inches square. They they're in cassettes, so they're very clean. And they are loaded into a machine called a stepper. And it's the opposite of a photographic enlarger. It's a photographic reducer. You have a five-inch you know, negative or really a slide positive, And you shrink the image down to the size of your fingernail, roughly, on a 12-inch silicon wafer. And use the wafer steps. And it repeatedly prints all these circuit patterns. Um, and there's probably a hundred layers of these kinds of masks that are done in the process of making a chip. There's like a thousand steps or more on one, the more modern processes from going from a bare silicon wafer to a finished wafer with functional integrated circuits on it. Wow. Yeah. And, it's, I, it, I would... and the technology is such that, you know, the older processes that are currently being used use 192 nanometer laser light, which is ultraviolet light. And they can print down to about 10 nanometer features. Now you wonder how can you print something that's a fraction of the wavelength of light, right? And it involves interference patterns. Pinhole diffraction. Yeah, it's, it's sort of controlled diffraction to be able to get features much smaller than the wavelength of light that you're printing with. Um, but good. now so we're reading, at the, reading the interference, basically. Yeah, it, it, there's an X and a Y 
you know, so the, the circuits are rec rectilinear kind of. But the new technology is how do you make uh, laser light that's much shorter wavelength than 192 nanometers? And what they're doing is a machine that takes a drop of molten tin, they drop it through a vacuum chamber, and they blast it with 192 nanometer laser light, and it turns into a plasma and emits 10 nanometer deep UV. And they take that light that you can't focus with glass. You have to use mirrors. And they have this big, huge machine with hyperbolic surfaces, you know, front surface mirrors, and they use that light. And it's a, you know, a burst mode kind of a technology, right? So that's yeah, the sounds, latest sounds step a little bit like harness. I use, I've got a pulse welder producing some pretty intense light. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Nick, um, move your microphone closer. You're a little low, but... Um, uh, I would I would have to um, bend, I would have to rip my ear out. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> so, so, Joe, what you're saying is you're Leibowitz, right? Yeah. You're the one who, in a thousand years... <laughs> yeah. That's right. Okay. Um, so, uh, so does any of that, does any of your professional life inform your building of cameras today? Is there anything, is there, is there bleed over? Is there, do you get ideas on? That's an interesting question. And I have spent a lot of time in the fab walking around in times when I don't have to think deeply about something, I can kind of daydream just walking a corridor, like a quarter mile walk to get out of the fad. Maybe I'm thinking about something. Uh -huh. The technology itself hasn't really directly inspired me, but what does inspire me is the interior uh, architecture of the fab is all grids of rectangles. You know, the floors mm -hmm. are perforated metal panels and the walls are all made of aluminum panels and different rectangles and uh -huh. maybe about 10 years ago I started getting the idea for grid cameras you know like a pinhole camera with multiple chambers and multiple pinholes and you can make these sure. grid kind of images and that was directly inspired by just being in an environment that was all rectangles you know metallic yeah. surfaces and everything it was that was more of a visual inspiration I'd like to point out that, you know, it used to be that uh, mankind would, you know, uh, let's say work in a factory and dream of more efficient and higher tech factories. And Joe works in a computer chip factory and dreams of making pixelated cameras out of wood and paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There, there, uh, uh, there are a couple of things um have you do you know the instagram do he does he sells lumen cameras um yeah Hoderman. Uh, Hoderman. Hoderman, yeah i have one of his yeah. cameras in fact a couple of have them. you seen the grid things that he's been doing he's been i think it slits um and he's doing some uh rather than pinholes they're slits and uh been working with I assume it's paper because um, mm. he's he's been getting a lot of color work and uh, some mm. other things with that. Is he using uh, them as lumen prints? 
Yeah, uh, I, I think that there's still Lumen Prince, but it's worth yeah. um, looking back at his Instagram. Uh, I'm going to look at that. That's, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so we have architect. Oh, and that does remind me of one other thing. Um, uh, is have you seen the photographs that have been made with um, uh, straws? Uh, oh yeah, like plastic straws. <laughs> oh, I have a story about that. <laughs> so it, it, I started making one of those cameras. Uh -huh. I actually built several prototypes, and one of those yeah. makes about a three-inch square image. It's like uh -huh. I don't know what thirty by thirty, and there uh -huh. was a period about eight years ago when I was buying up a certain brand. It was like Blue Diamond brand, these black coffee stir sticks. They're like an eight oh, yeah, inch diameter yeah. and they come in a plastic box. I was buying them out of every Target store in Albuquerque. And I'm sure some data cruncher in Target's corporate headquarters is wondering what the hell is going on with coffee stir sticks <laughs> in Albuquerque, you know? But, and, so, and then they yeah. ship a dozen gross pallets. <laughs> right, exactly. And now they can't sell it. But I was working on an 8x10 version, and I, it's maybe three-quarters finished. But I had to build this wooden frame and a cardboard front with all these holes so you could support the tubes. And anyways, the problem is those tubes bend the way I was yeah. doing it. And then when they bend, you don't get the light through. And I couldn't get a really good image out of the the one I spent months and months working on. But after I knew Ethan, we started working on using his CAD software just to design, like, how could you optimize that kind of a straw camera? We lost yeah. so many days yeah. and, like, yeah. four iterations of this camera. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, wondering, I'm wondering, and this is something I wouldn't know, uh, but I'm thinking of glass uh rods i'm wondering if yeah. glass a series of glass rods now you couldn't it that's, wouldn't be economical to make an eight by ten but you could probably right. make a that's exactly how board. like the npc and forcher backs worked mm -hmm. for okay. putting polaroids on a 35 millimeter or medium format cameras they had a, yeah. a piece of fiber optic glass which was basically a bunch of glass rods to oh yeah yeah okay transfer. i did come up with a similar idea or a similar concept that I call the pixelator camera. And what the pixelator is, is a grid, a, a grid of cells, and they're open front and back. And you put a sheet of a translucent view screen on the front of it, and you uh -huh. project an image from either a lens or a pinhole camera into that, onto that screen. And then at the back of the cells that are open, you put a sheet of photographic paper. And what uh -huh. happens is you have a coherent image projected onto the front of each cell, but then the light gets averaged into some average level by the time it gets to the back where the film is. Okay, so sure. An example would be if you had a cell that was half shadow and half highlight, it would print maybe a neutral middle gray image, right? Yeah. So I'm able to get, I built a variations on these things and I, I'm able to get these pixelated digital looking images out of with photo paper and when you go down the rabbit hole of, yeah. of this kind of craziness you walk through the hardware store in the lighting section yeah. and you're looking at fluorescent light diffusers you know those plastic yeah. grids and you start thinking oh god i could build a 20 by 
30 inch camera and have half inch pixels and you know that's the craziness but it works it actually works and yeah. you only need a pinhole roughly the size of the grid so it's it can be fairly fast with the caveat that you lose some light through the projection screen you know because you sure. have to average it out because that was my real invention was the pixel yeah. camera congratulations <laughs> any, you, you've discovered 8-bit yeah, <laughs> I discovered not even. It. Well, it's funny. It it's continuous tone, right? The gray tones are, but the but discrete the from discrete each from other. each other. Yeah, yeah. the the yeah. spatial resolution is finite and limited, but the tonal resolution is is full. Yeah, full gray scale of of silver negative paper. Now, wow. if only we could make uh, continuous tone across space. <laughs> well, what I'd like to try is revisit this idea with uh -huh. reversal process, peroxide reversal process, and get direct positive pixelator uh, images. Fine. Might be fun. Yeah, so yeah. Joe is constantly like, uh, we, we like to hang out on Tuesdays. Joe has like a weird schedule, and I just work around it. Um, and, you know, Tuesday is like my day to play, which means, you know, we don't go... Uh, push each other on the swings or anything we we make stuff but it's the day that i i generally make stuff that doesn't have to be sold um but generally i like so to make stuff on lately uh we'll we'll get there okay. i gotta i gotta play some roll music in between okay. but uh, <laughs> you know generally i like for those projects to maybe give me some it's fine you're the guest. Uh, uh, I like for those projects to give me some knowledge that I might apply in the future towards a product. And there are always projects that Joe is trying to you know, catch me on his hook uh, into like 3D printing and laser cutting a typewriter. Or oh, yeah. this Pixelator camera is one that, you know, we started. I mean, Joe's been doing this for years before I met him. And then. One of the first things we did together was like uh, resin print a tiny pixelator camera. And, you know, I said, like, Joe, this is never going to be a product. I can't work on this. And then, like, a week later, I had <laughs> lost three days uh, designing this print. And the, the pixelator camera, I have, like, very mixed feelings about because it's an extremely interesting idea to me. But also, I know I could easily lose a month perfecting this and then never be able to sell them. Although, uh, over here, I have a almost eight foot tall buck for building a bellows on. I have built. While I would like to keep it as a tool, um, it is too big for my shop, and so maybe we will just turn that into a sculpture. So, getting back to the straw camera, the drinking straw camera. Uh, after Ethan and I started working on how do you optimize the design to be manufacturable. I finally came up with the idea that instead of using straws, if you have an aperture plate in the front of the camera with a grid of holes, and then halfway back, let's say, you have an aperture plate with a single hole, then you have one discrete path for every one of those holes. You're basically making a pinhole image oh. of the aperture plate. It's kind of like a crudely drawn, you know, like that. Right there, sure. That does the same thing as a drinking straw camera without having to use straws. 
the benefit of that is that we could cut the plates on the laser rather than trying to 3D print yeah. something. You, as we got I'm just data. thinking about um, if you take, you know, okay, so um, for an 8x10, you've got a 0.5 millimeter uh, hole um, mm -hmm. in, on, a, on a pinhole. Um, are you then by um putting another hole behind that are you then you've got say uh let's do f-150 now are we 150th or, or f-150 of that f, that no, no. Official, the way it or, works or is it, the does that work think of it as yeah. a virtual tube a, a uh -huh. hole here in the front hole in the middle okay the angle of view of the tube is twice the focal ratio of the tube itself. Like you could get from the upper left to the lower right, lower right to upper left. The angle of view is double the length to diameter ratio of the tube. If, okay. if, you, if you design it right, it doesn't right. choke down the light right. at and, all. Right. And you, can, you okay. can design the length and the diameters so that the image circles kind of converge close to each other with the film plane. Yeah. And well, and the other thing that I'm thinking is you're going to get in your corners, you're going to get ovals. And you could so cut holes on the laser cutter to compensate for that. And we oh, have for spherical yeah. ab aberration control. The, yeah, the other kind of something that may be something I wouldn't want to right yeah. um, <laughs> to yeah, well, you, you know, can make correct. them like coma shaped toward the edge, yeah. and when you look at them at an angle, they're circles. Yeah, absolutely. That's why awesome. they call him. That's why they call him Graham Aberration. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to be conscious that we are not looking at it with our eyes, but we're looking at it with an intermediate machine. Yeah. Um, so um, at least that's my photography uh, experience. Well, that was wow. one of my. Okay. That was one of my attractions to pinhole. By the way. Yeah. is the fact that the light that is illuminating, let's say, an outdoor subject came from the uh -huh. sun, from a fusion reaction in the sun, through space, through the yeah. atmosphere, reflected off the subject, yeah. and goes right to Scattered. the film through the pinhole without yeah. any intermediary uh, mediation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you shoot it at night, in which case you have the moon yeah. reflection. And that's a, that's and, a moon reflector. Uh, and yeah. it, all, it all blows apart when you look at the print, and then it goes into your brain. Yeah. That's, that's the mediation part. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Everything's a simulation. Okay. Okay. So I think... Um, this is probably a, a good intro a little bit into who Joe Van Cleve is. Uh, uh -huh. If you haven't seen his YouTube videos, you know, pause this, go watch a few, come back. Um, but uh, maybe, unless you're driving. Yeah, unless you're driving, keep driving, keep yeah. listening. Um, maybe now is a good time to stop, and then in the next two sections we'll talk about specifically some of Joe's cameras mm -hmm. and then uh -huh. what Joe and I have been working on for the last three months. Okay. Two and a half years. Into a vest pocket. A vest pocket. Okay. Do you guys want to take a short break, or do you want me to just roll through? I say to your coffee. Okay, rolling through. Hold on. Here we go.
playing the music, you can't hear it, but it's going out to you too. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna be leaving our road then. Okay. We'll do all the cool Guys, he's got to go get dumpster juice. No dirt. Kind of juice. Okay, and we're back. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Before any more conversation about dumpster juice. All right, um, Joe, you and I have looked at your camera collection, which yep. is, you know, or 30, 40 cameras built over almost my entire lifetime. Amazing, um, wow. <laughs> they were great. Um, and we made some videos about that, and um, I have a thumb drive in one of these drawers labeled Joe, where yeah. you were scanning all of the drawings of them to make the coffee table book, which eventually get made. Yeah, I, I hope. But uh, you brought a couple cameras yeah. today. Okay. Um, why don't you show them off? Okay. So this is a 4x5 uh, basic plywood box camera. Um, it has the property of being able to. Have the shutter behind the pinhole. So I'm going to loosen up one of these brass screws. There's a plate that you can pull off the pinhole, and you can put a viewing hole in there if you want to use the view screen in the back and actually view it on the view screen. But the shutter is internal to the camera, and it's hard to pull right now because it's been in storage for a while. The back of it has a Brown plastic view screen on a frame, uh -huh. and that is the shutter right there. It's hard to see. Of course, to be dark, and I can't pull it up right now because humidity or something. Anyway, so that shutter pulls up. It's behind the pinhole, and I have a uh, a viewing hole right here. And um, anyways, it takes a four by five film holder. Uh -huh. These little offset uh, dowels sections act like cams. You can lock a film holder in there, turn it, and lock it in place. I have oh. viewing dots. Uh, the shutter is the front, and then you have some viewing dots yeah. on the side, little brass. So uh -huh. it makes a very accurate way to line up your composition. Uh, it has a tripod nut on the bottom. Very robust, made of half-inch plywood, or today's plywood maybe. Uh -huh. um, and this is one of my favorite cameras just because it's so rugged and easy to take out on the road and uh, do stuff like that. That's, That's a classic Joe camera. It really reminds me of the Leonardo pinhole, yeah. but like yeah, if, if they were not uh, restricted by, you know, production cost. Yeah. Or, or not just uh, the Leonardo, but the Santa Barbara as well. Mm -hmm. Santa Barbara, um, right. Yep. Yeah. Now, I originally had a dowel running across the back and right. I used a wedge in there to wedge the film holder, but it was obstructing the field of view, so I changed it to these little cams yeah. and I get a full view of the back. Uh, so the next camera is a homemade cardboard box with a steel plate stuck on the front. And when you open it up, so you, first of all, you mount this box to a plate, a wooden plate that goes on a tripod. And then the box is a holder for nine uh, film capsule pinhole cameras. And each one is labeled. 
and there's a little colored dot that tells you where the pinhole is and it's a it's a sliding shutter there you go you just uh, it's a little ring that pulls up oh okay I like that and so the box is not the capsule the box is not the camera the box is the holder for nine cameras yeah the box is the holder but there is a magnet in the bottom of each camera and you can stick the um the little cameras on the little plate here and then you can adjust ah. the tripod and use it as as the mount and then typically what i do is when i'm done shooting that one i put it upside down in the box so i can tell which one has been exposed like that one's been exposed okay. and then i can go to number two and is there so, you're usually shooting paper with this again yeah i'm going to shoot i shoot paper oftentimes i'll shoot Harmon direct positive paper sure and so they end up being like uh two inch square roughly whatever okay. you can fit maybe just slightly inch and three quarter yeah for for um, people who are um listening uh while driving or or just listening to the podcast um the box is um uh it's it's a little bit bigger than the box that you would buy uh a bulk roll of film in um and it has nine cylinders and the cylinders are uh, roughly the size of a 35 millimeter film can. That's what they uh, are. They are 35 millimeter film caps. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, oh, so these are the, the plastic uh, canisters that right. go she around the plentiful designed okay. to be light tight. And not not the yeah. Fuji kind. Yeah. <laughs> not <laughs> but yet. the black kind with, with a black cap. Yeah. Okay. And I have uh, a little ring of uh, gaffer's tape. Uh, cardboard that acts like a pull shutter it pulls up there are pinholes okay. mounted on the side of the canister so the what? home plane wraps in a semi-cylinder yeah. around now i shoot a ton of pinhole but i shoot almost exclusively film um mm -hmm. what uh shutter speeds are we talking about for uh harman positive and i'm guessing what you have about a 0.1 millimeter uh pinhole yeah roughly 0.1 um i would rate it at iso 3 to iso and maybe in the summer iso 3 and the uh -huh. depths of the winter you may go down to iso 1.5 or something uh -huh. um, so and typical shutter shutter speeds are like maybe 20 seconds 30 seconds in bright sun okay. Okay. Yeah, not a lot not a lot of light fall off yeah, such a tiny tiny and, Yeah, no. you've got about a ten millimeter uh focal length on that. Yeah. Or ten millimeter probably twenty. Uh, you know, whatever the diameter of the canister is. Wow. Yeah, that's that's uh, almost an inch. Seventeen, yeah. eighteen. I I really hope the uh lensless guys are listening to this thinking, we should have gotten Joe on. <laughs> the nice thing about these Harman prints is you get a little square direct positive image that'll fit in the palm of your hand. I mean, yeah. it's surprisingly sharp because they're yeah. so small. I also enjoy this uh, set of cameras because you could shoot for a relatively long time. You just go out with like basically a camera that fits in your pocket and get nine pictures with it, which with pinhole yeah. could, you know, take me half a day. And they're, you know, almost free to make right <laughs> they are. right it's really cool. just having the dark room to cut the paper and load 
of the cameras, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so that's a fun camera. I made a slightly bigger version of these with PVC pipe. Mm -hmm. They make like two and a half or three inch square pictures the same way. But that takes a little bit more work. You have to glue the end caps on the bottom and, you know, drill the plastic and all that. It's a lot more fun just using film canisters because sure. it's just repurposing you know, a photographic uh, throwaway item, right? Right. This one is very So beautiful. this is probably the last most recent camera I built. And this the idea was a ultra wide angle four by five. And this kind of represents the kind of construction technique I like to use, which is I go to the it hardware store wood, by the and way, I try to find materials that I can purpose with minimal amounts of construction. So this is like a five-eighths inch square poplar sticks, the kind you get at Lowe's hardware store. These are the inch and a half poplar sticks that okay. are already finished grade. You just need to cut them good on a miter saw. I used a uh, pneumatic nail gun and glued them the corners together, some eighth-inch model aircraft plywood, a, a little pivoting shutter uh, with a nylock-mounted uh, screw. So this shutter is nice and snug with a little stop there. And then I got tired of using elastic bands. I got tired of using rubber bands on cameras like this, and I decided I needed springs. So what I did is uh, mounted these screw eyes uh, to, the, to the side of the camera and attached these springs here with some brass rods. And there is a, a set of springs in the back. So this plate here, you basically slide a film holder in here. And this pressure plate keeps the film holder pushed nicely up against the flange of the camera. Wow. There is a quarter 20 tripod mount on the bottom. And it's a nice little wide-angle camera. You can kind of get an idea of the focal length and the angle of view there. Pretty wide-angle, like 120 degrees. Yeah. Joe, I, can I, I oh. highly approve of this uh, construction method and material use. Yeah. Hey, Ethan, bring me up. Uh, Joe, i got to show you this. Um, there we oh, go. Yeah. And so this is, this is made out of hickory flooring. In fact... <laughs> the I'm sitting on. Okay, so that's a, a hickory flooring board. It has a piece of plywood for the front, and here I've got a yeah. There we go. So it's just uh, yeah. slide up, slide down. I have a handle for carrying it. Um, now I have the quarter twenty as well, but unfortunately that creates a hole. Um. So oops, there we go. So I put. Quarter inch, yeah, long quarter inch um, uh, bolts in there to just keep it light tight in the meantime. Uh, but I am sticking with the elastic hair bands. Oh, um, yes. Those people, uh, I'm holding on with elastic hair bands. Are, are those I, the ones I, you use for your hair? Yes, I do. Um, I gather it up after I shave my head. And uh, and and I I bind them into bands. So we are um, now. Mine are. This is obviously a little bit longer focal length than yours. Um, I feel like the focal, the focal length is is dictated by the width of the board that I right. that that the hickory 
came in, uh, the hickory flooring came in. So, okay, so what were you looking for? Let's talk about the image that you created yes. with that. Yeah, um, why were you for a super yeah. wide? Yeah, I, I like that look. Uh -huh. I like the idea of the light fall off to the edge and having the kind of the linear wide angle distortion of, you know, being able to come into a camera and do a subject matter close and right. having it darken toward the corners. There's a certain look about that that tends to isolate a subject matter better uh -huh. than a, a more normal angle of view camera where everything is the same exposure. It's hard to get yeah. a sense of depth and layering to your image. Uh, okay. Sometimes I think it, these wide angle cameras do that better. Also, there's okay. less room than you might expect in the world famous Joe Van Cleef backyard <laughs> to shoot <laughs> landscapes. <laughs> okay. Well, so, so one challenge though to shooting yeah. these wide angle cameras uh -huh. is the, the camera ends up being a shadow, a source of shadows, if you're getting up close yeah. to something. If you want to get something fairly large, you have to be close. And so the strategy, and this is especially a problem in the northern hemisphere in the winter when the sun angle is low in the south, but the strategy is if this is the camera and this is my subject matter, you have to position them so that the sun is kind of coming into the gap between them, <laughs> side lighting the okay. subject, and that way the shadow of the camera won't get into the onto the image, yeah. onto the subject. It, it also gives you some pretty dramatic light yeah, to, to, right. to show the relief of the object itself. Yeah. So. so if you're doing like a subject that you can move, you know, that's a good uh -huh. way to do it. Or if it's something like a tree, you can move the camera until the sun angle is ideal for that exposure. Yeah. But that's something to keep in mind with a ultra wide angle camera. Yeah. You know, that problem of the camera, camera shadow becoming part of the image. Yeah, so the uh, focal length on that's about one inch, right? Am I? No. It's about an forty-five inch. millimeters. It's, it's an inch and a quarter, roughly. Okay. I say. Whatever so the, the width yeah. of that uh, board is. Okay. Yeah, yeah I mean that's uh, inch and a quarter on that board, but plus the depth plus of the, the, the film eighth holder. inch. So it's about yeah. an inch and a half. Okay, so so it's a fifty, a sixty. It's very so wide. wide in there, which is pretty wide for a for a four by five. Yeah. Let me. And you can also use this as a film clapper. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's my question. We're, we're talking pinholes, so I'm going to show that I have a little piece of beer can. This is from uh, those of you in Florida. This is from Killer Whale Premail. Um, and but it is attached to my PCB. Um, there we go. My PCB drills. Is this what you're using to make your pinholes? How? And then the other thing is, how much of a Nazi are you about getting a you know a perfectly round hole for pinholes? Those are um, great questions. Um, yeah, I use sewing needles. Uh -huh. Usually put into a wine bottle cork, and so you obviously have to drink a bottle of wine first. Oh, it's horrible. Um, and, yeah, horrible. A, and a can of beer. Yeah, you have can to, beer. yeah. Well, so I use two mil thick sheet brass, which is uh, 0.002 inch thick. Brass. Okay. Um, I will cut about an inch square, which is two and a half centimeters for you yeah. Europeans. Um, and I will dimple 
with a, I have a metal punch with a dull tip. I will dimple it on a piece of soft material like cardboard to get a dimple. Uh -huh. uh, then I will put the tip of the sewing needle into the dimple, uh, dimple side down, and rotate it, rotate the piece of brass, actually, until uh -huh. you barely start to tear through the tip of the dimple with the tip uh -huh. of the needle. And then I'll start sanding that on a piece of 600 grit emery using eight figure eight sanding powder uh -huh. until you start making a clean hole on the tip of the dimple. So the tip of the dimple is thinner than the two mil brass because when you dimple it down, you squish right. the brass and make it thinner. And then you inspect it with a loop to see how uniform it is. And then I measure it by getting a millimeter scale, uh -huh. putting the piece of brass behind it so the, the hole is half shown, half of it's poking up on the scale. And then uh -huh. with a loop, I measure how many diameters will fit in a millimeter. Sure. And then you just take the inverse of that, and that's the yeah. diameter in millimeters. I've, um, I've done a, a measurement using a flatbed scanner uh, and set it to 1,000 um, 1, pixels per, per centimeter. Um, and then, you know, and then right. doing the math from that. Um, yeah, I'd try that. And I think what I find is sometimes I'm targeting a certain pinhole size, like for a certain camera yeah. design. Yeah. And I will start out making it as small as I can, which I think the smallest I've been able to do is about uh, 0.15 millimeters uh -huh. by hand to, and where they're uniform. And then from there... To make it larger, like if you had to go to 0.2 or 0.3, you just barely touch the needle to the hole and do a little turning with barely any pressure. Do a little figure eight sanding of it, remeasure it, and you just enlarge it until you get to the point where you where you want to stop. Okay, um, that's okay. kind of how I make them, and it it is is an iterative process. Yeah, and it's a lot more convenient doing it that way than having to go back and forth to your flatbed scanner to measure it. Um, the, the second question, though, you asked was regarding how important is it to get the right size. Yeah. Um, I've seen some wonderful... Well, not only the right size, but the uh, perfectly round. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I think perfectly round is probably more important than the uh, ideal size. Um, yeah. But I've seen some wonderful soft pinhole images that were not from the ideal pinhole size for yeah. in terms of sharpness, but especially in small gauge film, black and white mm -hmm. film images, where when you enlarge them, you get a lot of grain along with a really soft image. There's something yeah. about the soft image with the sharp grain that kind of, they play off each other. It works really well for a certain kind of image. Um, but I've also looked at you know, the ideal, ideal sharp pinhole. And it's really a matter of, if you want the, the sharpest pinhole image, you really need a, a larger format. It's, it's all about, if you look at the pin, the optimal, the uh, Rayleigh criterion formula, is, is the longer the, the focal pinhole? length, you're, the more, the, the higher of an F ratio you can have. Yeah. For the ideal pinhole size. Oh, and that not, works can, up until... The F number is so big that you get reciprocity failure and your exposures are too long. Or you start getting 
physically around the size of a wavelength of light, and you get uh, yeah. Well, the Rayleigh criterion will will give you that, right? You're not going to make it too small, but um, I'm not familiar with that. Can you explain the? the so Lord Rayleigh yeah. was a British or English um, scientist in the 19th century, and he basically came up with the formula for if you kept making the aperture of a lens smaller and smaller, at a certain point, the image won't be any sharper than the diffraction image of the light itself. And that's the optimal size of a pinhole. What's that work out to be? For, for a given like yeah. is, is that what is, is uh, the Mr. Pinhole is yes. what I use. I yes. ballpark it and... Right. And, yeah. and, you know, I'm, I'm, you, I usually don't actually measure or review my pinholes. I, I cut them and you can kind of tell when they cut cleanly. Uh, and I use, I use the drills um, right. and you can tell when they cut cleanly and when they don't. And I just throw them in there based on the size of the drill that I use. Right. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit more loosey goosey, um, with that. Well, uh, there's different philosophies of how yeah. you approach pinhole photography. Yeah. There I are mean, people who, who are like the typical middle-aged guy, large format photographer guy who wants everything made of brass and cherry wood and yeah. precisely made pinholes and yeah. to go out in the landscape and try to make it as sharp of a picture as possible. Yeah, it's and called then the, the other side of the coin is thrown <laughs> together cardboard boxes and poke a hole in something yeah. to go out and make art, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm I'm with you on that. I'm uh, I, I guess I'm at that end. <laughs> and they're both good. They're both equally yeah. valid approaches. Right? Depends on yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask you then one more question on pinholes and and or or let you move on to the next camera um what is it about pinhole that you like what about a pinhole image is compelling i think it's the unlimited or nearly unlimited depth of field okay the fact that you can get angles of view wider than what is practical with refractive optics uh -huh. And you can have pinhole images on curved film planes. You know, you can warp the, the, yeah. the paper or film in the camera, right? For anamorphic kind of yeah. projections. Um, yeah. But I think another part of it is more philosophical with me is I like the idea that the, the light is unmediated. And what the pinhole serves to do is what's called a phase selector. It's selectively choosing only the rays of light that are approximately in phase with each other, as Ethan laughs. Sounds good. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, you think about, you know, behind my shoulder, that shiny thing on the wall yeah. is reflecting light in all directions. But if you were to isolate it to a narrow angle of view, you would get only a narrow phase. Light okay. is in phase. Okay. Believe that shiny thing on the wall is Weird Al's Alapalooza cassette tape. And of course it's appropriate. <laughs> the first cassette I ever bought. 
Oh man, uh, Foreigner Four was the first cassette. I no, sorry, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. Uh, Dirty Deeds from <laughs> that's my first cassette. Yeah. Um, so I, I like the look of Pinhole um, because it it looks kind of dreamlike. It's not going to be as sharp as a lens, even if you try to optimize it. But it yeah. looks like the way things look like when I remember something from a dream. Or if you okay. think about the way your visual cortex works, where you have a central part of your vision that's sharp and everything else is sort of much less distinct around the edge in your peripheral vision, that's kind of the way it reminds me of pinhole. I also think, like, you know, knowing a little bit about you and the way you like to work, uh, it has something to do with dirty deeds done dirt cheap, is that that pinhole can be done really well for really quickly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like in a series of film cans, yeah. or yeah. you can make beautiful objects like this, yeah. you know, tank of a plywood camera. You can kind of go at any level right. of uh, instruction and still mm -hmm. make a functional yeah. thing. So, the, the, uh, but I'm not opposed is... to using glass in lenses. In fact, I would love to rebuild this camera as a, a sliding box camera and use an adapted lens of some kind. You know, it would, that would be another fun project. Um, so yeah, I, would, I would like to see you make uh, an underwater version. You'd have to put glass in front of your pinhole, and you'd probably need very, very bright light. I mean, Nick, you're forgetting we live in the desert. First, we'd need water. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, but with that wide angle, you could manage with a little uh, wading pool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. There's a good lens. Yeah. Um, well, I like the idea of adapted optics. Um, yeah. So some of the early cameras in the 19th century that were called pinhole were actually hybrid lenses. Because the emulsions back then were so slow, they couldn't really do pinhole photography. If you ever tried to do pinhole photography with a daguerreotype or something, it's just too slow, right? So sure. some of the early pinhole images were actually glass lenses that were stopped down to near the Rayleigh limit. And I like that. I like the idea of a hybrid pinhole fixed glass or refractive lens combination. Uh, because you can get sharper images than with a pinhole itself. But you have enough uh, depth of field latitude that you don't need to focus the camera. Well, you could Dumb. trade off, right, and get yeah. reasonably sharp pictures at a, at a pretty quick right. shutter speed. Dom Silverthorne, who is lens underscore punk on Instagram, has been doing um, a lot of experiments with, with that type of approach. And um, uh, and so um, uh, it, it's it's down down the path. If there are people going down that path right now, yeah. uh, you know, 150 years later. Um, oh, yeah. So everything's that's new under the sun has been under the sun before. Exactly. Well, we live in a great age, right? Yeah. Because we still have black and white and color film and paper. And we have digital cameras and scanners and stuff too. So, absolutely, absolutely, we're in the second golden age of photography. As I yes, as I've uh... one other kind of camera that I'd really like to talk about, and I didn't bring an example. It uh -huh. kind of occupied my mind for years 
when I first started making pinhole cameras is I was interested in the challenge of how do you shoot more than one image at a time when you go out on a photo trip without carrying sheet film holders? And it was just a, a technical challenge. And I ended up making a series of falling plate cameras. Uh-huh. I didn't bring one with me, but the idea is essentially a series of mat boards or little thin metal plates stacked up in the back of the camera. Uh-huh. And I have a system of slots with a knob that slides back and forth, and you can control, make the front plate fall down to the bottom of the camera after you've taken the picture. And okay. I think the largest one I made was an 8-inch by 8-inch format, a big wow. wooden cube that was kind of like built like this. Um, I made a, a later one that was like a 5 by 8-inch um, with sheets of, uh, what do you call it? The aluminum flashing rolls of flashing you buy at the hardware store uh, glued yeah. onto a, a, a stick frame with epoxy to make uh-huh. a really lightweight metal camera. Uh, that was a falling plate camera. So I, I made a number of these falling plate cameras that satisfied that. You know, you, you just tape the photo paper to the front of each plate with a loop of masking tape. And the only thing that keeps it from working good is if the camera falls over in the trunk of your car when you're driving, then the the film plates that have already fallen will probably get jumbled and block the others from falling. So you had to kind of put it in a big cardboard box with a weight in it so it keeps it from tipping over. It's a gravity-dependent camera. Um, a gravity-dependent camera. True. So it's not a space camera. You can't use it in orbit. Okay, so I, I love the idea. Um, how I'm, I'm thinking the graphmatic backs are similar, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but uh, but I kind of like the idea of that falling plate as well. Joe and I were outside. We wanted to talk about what we've been working on and what we have to work on today, but mm-hmm. um, we were kind of talking more about straw cameras, and I did my classic, like, shut up, shut up, let's save it for the podcast. Um, <laughs> what were we talking about? Well, I got on the subject of, you've probably seen this recently on Petapixel, a guy that made a essentially a camera of straw a white reflective screen in the back of the camera and he has yeah. a hole in the front of the camera next to the lens digital camera. to shoot it with a digital camera. And yeah. what it really is, is a camera obscura that you can mm-hmm. photograph the image with a digital camera. Uh, instead of sketching on it like we did 300 years ago. This is the lens I'm going to do for that type of camera. Oh, it's cool. a process lens I got from... Uh, Mark of the FPP. Wait, are you, are you going to just re-photograph it with a digital camera? Yeah, I don't know whether it's going to be necessarily digital, but I'm going to do that method. Okay, yeah. so I got to jump in. Speaking of 
process on those. And yeah. what we talked about earlier with regards to semiconductor manufacturing, there was an old Nikon Body 9 stepper in the older fab I worked in. And a friend of mine was working to demo the equipment. And he, he got all the optics out of the machine. And he gave me a couple of the lenses. And the big lens that he gave me is almost this big in diameter. The thing weighs like 30 pounds. And it's, okay, it's this a, in big a, in diameter. Joe just held up. Joe just held up a disc the size of a 12-inch record. Yeah. Um, so and, uh, it is uh, one meter focal length, and it's probably optimized for ultraviolet light of a certain wavelength. But it's about 35 or 40 pounds, weighs heavier than a typewriter. And I would think that would make a great camera lens. <laughs> I think it would require a tank camera that you could never yes, move that's right. we played with this for a little bit uh, i think there are better choices there are, there. there are better choices it's very impressive it is impressive, right that that lens probably would have cost more than your house oh, yeah. and my house yeah, together. when it was new that was probably several hundred thousand dollars and Easy. and just think you and when you go out to shoot it you do need to stay away from the sun oh you uh, do because, <laughs> yes. well you i have a <laughs> from when i was a tv repairman I have a 36-inch diagonal Brunel lens from a Mitsubishi production TV, and it is wonderful for setting two-by-fours on fire, burning ant nests, yeah. uh, uh -huh. burning weeds in That's the right. sun. And Q-Lab Gunner still had uh, up in the attic like a, one of those Brunel lenses that he turned into a death ray. <laughs> it's a pretty fun demo. Yeah. Directed yeah. energy it weapon. It's a pizza heater. It's a yeah. pizza maker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can heat one pepperoni extremely hot. <laughs> but you do have to be careful when you're carrying it. You have to hold it edgewise pointed to your body. Like You don't just don't carry it like that. It'll burn a hole in your leg. <laughs> oh, jeez. Wow. Yeah. Uh, about two seconds. You can, it'll set a two-by-four on fire in bright New Mexico sun. <laughs> Dang. Oh, we got no dang, dang, dang. Okay. So you were you were out talking about how to design the best death ray, mm -hmm. and what was it you came up with? Oh, we were talking about the idea of building a camera with the screen that's rephotographed on like petapixel. Um, it's you know oh, what yeah. um, when we talked to Sam Thraxel, uh, he did not have the ability to make ground glass so he actually made his focusing system like this where he stood in front of the camera and looked at a white piece of paper to focus and yeah. then closed that hole and took a picture which i thought that was a really elegant beautiful solution i am so not interested in building a huge large format camera only to photograph it with my cell phone or my sony like just paper's cheap stick a piece of paper in there yeah. I mean, I you know, to each his own, and we've certainly seen some beautiful cameras made, like in, in the first Homing Camera podcast, okay. and I forget who it was, but that's not something so think, that I want to build. Think of this as the 21st camera, or 21st century uh, Afghan box camera, where you set something up, and you take your digital picture, and you run it out of a selfie printer. Okay, um, so... You know, that's... that's I, I have... 
<laughs> I have a Afghan box camera that I built. It started out as a little three by four inch roughly format. I enlarged it to four by six and it's the box camera is about 12 by 12 by about 25 inches. And then a few months ago, I decided to take my little, I have an iPod touch device that's a little bit smaller than an iPhone. Uh -huh. And I decided to rebuild the inside of the camera so I can mount the iPod Touch up against the front of the camera, focus the view screen on the on the thing, and print digital images off my iPod Touch onto paper. And the way it works is you take a digital photo with your iOS device and you you invert the image to be a, a black and white negative and there are several ways to do it you can get an app a photo app or you can do the screen grab mode in, in the inverted inverted image like a yeah it, accessibility mode you do on the thing anyway you can get a, yeah. a negative image on your ios device and then go full screen with it set it in the box close it up and i have a little shutter in front of the uh, thing and pull the shutter out and make an exposure onto black and white paper uh, using the internal lens, and it works. I think that this is like a horrible deterioration <laughs> of the oops, sorry, uh, horrible deterioration of the original all analog box camera. You know, I'm not like one of these people who's like, oh, everything has to be analog. It's so much warmer to play video games on CDs instead of Steam, <laughs> you know, but like also I, uh, I, the, the digital I intermediary. Chad citing there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I wanted to explore the idea, see how it worked. It does work. Uh, it makes the process of making portraits out in public a little lot more convenient because you can Pose somebody in the in better lighting. You're not limited to the, the box has to sit on the tripod and they have to sit in the chair. You can pose somebody with nicer light and print their image in the box. So. Sorry, you have to 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 uh, replace my battery. My battery only do half an episode uh, on my camera. So. Um, and I think Nick is trying to talk to us, but he is not, his audio is not coming through. But um, so, yeah. What we were talking about during the break also was getting into, into uh, your project, uh, Ethan's project of making this massive bellows for the 20 by 24 inch camera. Yeah, so I'll, I'll grab some things that we can look at. Um, I think, let's see, last time Joe's made some videos about the uh, 4x5 and 8x10 self-developing backs and the Go, and we talked about it on the podcast two episodes ago. Um, the odd Go? Yeah, so Joe and I have a uh, date with the QLab folks to demo this giant camera that uh, we've been building uh, let's. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pull out some parts of it. It's getting totally disassembled today, and all of ninety nine percent of the pieces are getting swapped. Uh, for you know, we pulled it out. We shot with it the other day. It worked, but it had some issues. Are you, are you gonna do a demonstration uh, image today? 
or demonstration shoot for us. Not not for you. It's uh, it's the camera is going to get disassembled. But um, here, I'll show you some parts. Hold on. And as Ethan goes off camera, yeah, for the parts. I will show so you. Joe, what way. do you besides being an enabler on this yes. project? Oh. Okay, that so he's he's just shown me. us uh, a picture of the bellows. Now, the picture that he has shown us kind of looks like the front end of an old dragster, yes. um, or it could Our be the front end. Over. Yeah, or it could be the front end of a an X wing. Um, yes. yeah. So something along those lines. So <laughs> these. Bellows are okay. So uh, Ethan's about to show. Yeah, us. so we'll we'll get back to the bellows mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and why we're building them with such crazy tools. But um, this thing is working now. I got a backup here. My headphone cable is not that long, but um, this okay, thing is here and it works. It's a twenty by <laughs> twenty four inch. Need to get rebuilt, uh, self developing so. battery. Yeah, okay, so for the people who are just listening, think about a 20 or a 32 inch uh, flat screen TV, 32 inch uh, Samsung um, LCD, LED, whatever they are now. Um, and so that's the size that we've got. Now it's 20 by 24 inch opening. It looks to be um, what, two inches deep? Uh, yeah, inch and a half deep. Inch and a half deep. It's got a dark slide the size of my house. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's got a dark slide. There we go. Okay. There and the okay. So what's the material for the dark slide? Uh, that's that is a trade secret right now. Not because it's my trade secret, but. I got it from Jeff Perry, so he'll tell you what the dark slide material is. Or okay, so the dark. I will tell you after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the dark side, dark slide is made out of. Um, adamantium. Adamantium? No, unobtainium. Unobtainium. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's an SR seventy one Blackbird skin. So it's it's uh, what was that? Titanium. Um, <laughs> so um so anyway it's this big sheet of uh of something uh of a matte black um and the rest of it is made out of shiny acrylic is it yep. acrylic yep black um, acrylic and it's got a uh ela yeah. trough uh light baffle it's really hard to see in here but yeah um yeah it works right basically just yeah. just like the um the eight by ten. Oh yeah. Okay. Except it is scaled up and now working yeah. and has some extra light baffles because all sorts yeah. of uh, geometrical scaling issues. But yeah, so this one worked. This is a piece, and well, one day you will see the whole camera working. Uh, but um, we're about to tear it apart. Um, so what's the like, What's the price point on that right now? Um, on cameradactyl dot com. Is that a five hundred dollar yeah. no. back? Uh, more. Um, More. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, this thing has almost three hundred dollars worth of components. In it. Um, okay, and it takes over a day to make. 
Um, okay. But, you know, so I've actually, I said that I would release the 4x5 and the 8x10 already, and those are ready to go, but um, I don't want to release them because then I would have to make them, and I'm not done making the 20x24, and so I, okay. I'm just going to hold them all and release them all together. Yeah. Um, and if people want to buy 20 by 24s, I will do that too. But I think, you know, a few studios will buy them and then mostly I will sell small ones using this like a marketing device yeah. like uh, Polaroid. Anyway, that's sort of a sneak peek and we'll see that in some Joe videos coming up. Um, so this is, um, I have just realized, I know what you have for the name for this project, but it really should be the Albuquerque box camera. Um, Albuquerque <laughs> box. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Well, so, so anyway. Okay, should we show them the, the first version of this camera? I, I think um, you're going to have to swap out for a wide-angle lens. Okay, so, yeah, show some, I mean. Show some prints. We could show some prints. Well, we'll show the camera body first. It is, um, you know, all but, like, four pieces of this are getting swapped. Like, I try and think of the best way to build something, but uh, you can only think so hard until you just have to make the thing and find the errors, right? And so we have the yeah. first prototype, which has already been revved on the computer and in physical hardware, although it's a stack of parts right now. But um, let's okay. let's take a look at kind of what this camera looks like as best as I can set it up behind Joe. So you can use my headphones yeah. for longer. Oh. Just, just hang on. You yeah. can talk. I'll yeah. talk. And... and well, Joe, let yes. Ethan know he needs to put Nick in the corner again because Nick has okay. left it's and come Nick back. Nick at night. Doesn't yeah, work. absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Does this, Nick, <laughs> Does this fit? It's Nick in the corner. Uh, in the corner. Okay, okay, so I don't, see, I don't see the bicycle seat. Oh, yeah, Ethan can't even hear me because he's taking his headphones off. He took his headphones um, off. But he's just like usual, he's ignoring you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, there is a folding twenty by twenty four. Okay, so if you guys can remember back to the Black and Decker, um, uh, so those in the US, yeah, the Black and Decker fold foldable workbench, which I actually have in my shed. They're they're really good. Um, that is about the size of this object before it unfolds. Um, uh, <laughs> Ethan and Joe are unfolding. They have just sent up the, uh, and Nick, no. Um, we, uh, uh, they have just set up the front standard. Well, we set up the rear standard, and... so you just can't see it behind the front standard. Okay, okay. It's a uh, um, thing. Yeah. This uh, Bellows will extend out to seven and a half feet. Six and a half. Six and a half feet. The the front standard looks like the back standard on a four by five or a five by seven, about that size. Yeah. Uh, so at home. Right. So I mean, it's hard. I can't even get this in the frame, and we were kind of unset up for it. But, <laughs> you know, we're a podcast, so you know, we'll see this on video, but. You know, uh, the front standard was too wobbly, so we have a whole new assembly that's going together today. And then the real trick is this now mashed giant bellows. Joe and I spent a day in like 100 degree heat out on my driveway laying this thing out and trying to assemble it like I would assemble a 4x5 or even an 8x10 bellows. Uh -huh. The issue with that 
is that not everything scales up, right? So um, cardboard ribs are a little flimsy. And just uh-huh. like on a 4x5, I lay it on the table, and I can reach every part of it and glue it together and fold it up. On a 8x10, you know, it becomes a little harder. On a 20x24, the two of us were like, reaching over and walking on the thing, trying to glue it together because it was 12 feet uh, in diameter. So oh it didn't God. really work, and this yeah. became I, kind of a terrible thing. Um, there is some stuff that you can buy called book binding board. Yeah. Um, and you need to laser cut that, I think. Oh, and, we got one better. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And each rib... It looks to me like you've got um, inch-long ribs. Am I right about that? Yeah, about, approximately. Although, so Okay, those need to be three-inch. You just need to scale it all up. Well, they, that has its own problems, too. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so there were some material issues, some geometry <laughs> issue, but mostly just assembly issue, right? I've built plenty yeah. of bellows. In exactly the style, like literally hundreds of them, at least a hundred, and yeah. they all work great. But as this thing got huge, it got really unwieldy. What doesn't scale up linearly is the stiffness of material. Yeah, yeah, and but also just the size of the damn thing, uh, because it was just un- you know, if I was eighteen feet tall, this would be no problem to construct. Uh, but I'm not eighteen feet tall, um, mm-hmm. and it's just. You know, it was just like it, it became pretty sloppy because we couldn't reach the whole thing at once. So I'm going to put sure. this away and then we'll look at some of the solutions that we came to where um, I actually built what, three different tools to build a bellows. Are you going <laughs> nice. to move the daylight into Maybe we'll. Yeah, okay, okay. Hold on, Joe. You can narrate here. Okay. So um, we brainstormed last week after we. Uh, got this camera finished and did some test shots we had some light leaks uh, not really from the bellows but from uh, the back film holder area just some broken that's wood how that you know, that's how you know you're, you've got a prototype light, yeah, light right. leaks are just you know part so, of it. so we kind of brainstormed at the end of our day last week how to build a better bellows, what was the problem? And we, we figured that the, the stiffeners in each of the ribs of the bellows was simply too flexible. Yeah. And if you scale up the material, like let's say you're using cardboard or something, mm-hmm. to get it to be as stiff as it is in a 4x5 camera at a 20 by 24 inch, the thickness of the material ends up being really too thick. Um, and also the problem with things like mat board and cardboard is if you ever do bend it, it's permanently bent and it's yeah. internal and you can't really fix it. So we started going online and looking at other materials. And Did you by any chance look at the big, you know, like the super huge train uh, camera from 18, whatever it was, 1880 or yeah. whatever? We, we we did look at some of the big things. What is this material called? Hips, high-impact polystyrene. So, so what we ended up with is HIPS, high-impact polystyrene. This uh-huh. plastic material kind of looks like the cover 
of a flexible three-ring binder. Sure. Material, a little bit thicker. Um, it laser cuts pretty good, and it is stiffer than cardboard. It is flexible, but it's stiffer than cardboard. And most importantly is it cardboard, uh, you know, you get it humid, you put a kink in it, and right. it's done. Right. And this is like... Yeah. It's it's not going to lose performance over right. time in the same right. way that cardboard would. Yeah, I think this is a better solution for the bellows. But, um, All right, I think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, it's good. I think we're going to have to just carefully turn this. Okay. Hopefully, we will not lose the feed here. Our cables are very protected on this laptop. Yeah. I got a demo the, set up. So the inlet is across the shop. And this is the form that Ethan made to make the bellows making process better. This is a tall, skinny pyramid. Well, it's of, not that skinny in the back. Yeah, made of, of thin, uh, like quarter inch plywood kind of stuff. Blue on it. And built on a two by two inch stick frame. Oh, and he's tipping it over now. Yeah. And so you, you lay this conical shaped, pyramid shaped form horizontally, and then you can drape your fabric over it and lay out your ribs, your stiffeners, uh -huh. and build your bellows right onto this form. Uh, and, okay. Uh, Interesting. Precisely. And that's exactly what Ethan was doing yesterday until... What, one or two in the morning or something like that? Yeah, I started gluing at uh, 9 a.m. and I finished at 12.30 p.m. Or 12.30 a.m. <laughs> yeah, so he's going to now, he's walking the new bellows over to, in front of the computer here. We will see it. So this oh. is the new bellows in a compressed state. Or collapsed, I should say. It doesn't yet have its frames on it. It just came out of the press. What is a pretty good indication of stiffness? Uh, yeah. I mean, each one of these ribs is flexible, but considerably stiffer than the previous Yeah. One. And I think this thing is going to hold up much better and droop much less into its own light path. And yeah. also, uh, Ethan used a slightly different design for the corner. So there's more room for the, the fabric to flex. Yeah, and it folds. Okay. Particularly when it's folded up, like it folds yeah. to under an inch thick, which is pretty okay. nutty. So what is the um uh what is the size of the back the the large end, what is the opening? Um, um roughly twenty six inches square. Okay, so that gives you um so that's uh, 26 inches is um, uh, uh, two-thirds of a meter, okay, yeah. uh, something along those lines. Um, so the um, it, it just, for, for the people at home, these bellows look a lot better. Now, one of the things that yeah. he's talking, you know, that you said that's eight feet tall, so that means that you're going to get, what, six feet of uh expansion six feet of um i have two questions mm -hmm. using the lens that you've you've figured out for this because i don't think you're gonna have a system <laughs> i think you've got one probably one lens you'll you'll two use. lenses 
Okay, two lenses. So the main lens, at what point are we one-to-one? How far um, of extension are you one-to-one? So the, the lens that is built, uh, five and a half, six feet. Okay. To show your lens? To show the no. lens, yeah. Well, hang on a second, okay. because I want to talk about the bellows. I think that you might have overbuilt your bellows. No, I did not. <laughs> okay, so uh, here is another. We overbuilt Rev One of the bellows and the rail, okay. so that that camera actually gets about a foot and a half shorter today when we swap the okay. base rails and the okay. new bellows. So I understand, you know it. Okay, so think about all the people who bought uh, Hummer H twos, um, you know, a decade ago or so. Um, they bought a vehicle that was very um, capable to drive off-road, but they don't, mm -hmm. okay? So you've built a camera to get to one-to-one. -to -one. Oh, How we want to go bigger than one-to-one. -one. Okay. So here's the deal. Um, I got a pretty big noggin, right? Uh, when I put my shoulder or my head, my chin on Laura's shoulder... Like with her head and neck is still shorter than my whole head. Uh, and yet compared to a 20 by 24 inch piece of paper, you know, it's kind of like an environmental portrait at it's one like to one. Two RC Cola cans. Yeah. In fact, I'll, I'll grab some of the test shots from last week where there was a light leak because of some broken wood and crappy assembly on the first prototype. But we can see... Very clearly, like, if you want to shoot a portrait in 20 by 24, unless that person is Andre the Giant, you really want to go to, like, 1 to 1. 1.5. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll be right back. Bigger, bigger, than, oh, bigger than life and twice as ugly is part of the, <laughs> part of the well, thing. Well, Ethan's inspiration was artists like Ilse Dorfman. Who sure. used the Polaroid yeah. 20 by 24 inch for mm -hmm. making portraits? And of course, because of the demise of the traditional Polaroid media in that size, those large cameras, they only built a handful of them. They're not being used. And Ethan's dream is really to resurrect that kind of artistic capability right. using the color direct positive oh. um, RA4 process. Okay. Uh, Ethan, look at your text when you can. The um, Ethan is holding up a 20 by 24 picture of Joe, and the light leak goes straight through the middle of his face. <laughs> yeah, so um, what, had hap what had happened was um, I assembled that back like a week after I cut oh. it and I broke a piece of the light seal. Oh, um, okay. okay. However, uh, we figured out, we found the light seal with our... Um, Uh, what do you say? We found it with our iPhones in the dark. Yeah. Flashlight week. mode and in the dark. It will be fixed with the new components, hopefully. But anyway, this is to give you an idea. This was our first try. So the uh -huh. black part down here is the bellows sagging, right? Because the okay. image is upside down in the camera. Yeah. yeah. This is okay. <laughs> Which we so temporarily fixed by using a lot of elastic bands and bulldog clips. To pull it out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> so let's what bring this up closer to the just to show the sharpness. Oh, okay. So one of the things that I was going. Oh God. Okay. And there's some detail. Wow. 
Right. Wow. And, and this is about one to one at this extension. Uh-huh. And, you know, like Joe's head looks like a peanut in this frame. Right. You need to go bigger. <laughs> and so we did. So, like, by then, know, by the time we did this, plane. it was a couple uh, hours later, and the sun had already shifted to where it was almost behind. Yeah. You can see the light on the back of my ear and stuff like that. And, but still yeah. have the fogging. But really sharp. You can see just a lot of detail in my hair. Yeah, pull the pull the the hair all the way to the front of the camera. These are incredible photographs. Just for I mean, I mean they're incredibly frustrating because of the light leak. Hopefully tonight we will have it dialed yeah. and beautiful. Like now, we got the process in. But, so these were done yeah. on uh, Adorama paper. Uh, yeah, whatever the cheapy Adorama paper. They're was. multi-grade paper, and we're using the citric acid hydrogen peroxide reversal process with uh, Ethan's self-developing vacuum. Okay. And it's, so it's it a really amazing process. It was done in the back, yes? Yeah. Um, if you see my latest video um, called The Dream Part 1, uh-huh. uh, I, I show using the 8x10 version of the back, uh, how, how the processing works. And essentially, you're going to develop, we use Dectol, and then citric acid for three or four minutes and uh, about halfway or two-thirds of the way through the citric acid, you can open up the dark slide in, in the daylight and finish the citric acid step, then do the peroxide bleaching, watch it bleach out totally to white paper, and then uh, redevelop it with the developer again. Of course, you do water rinses between those steps. But it's amazing to watch when you throw the developer on there to watch that positive image come up in a matter of seconds, like the way tintypes. Wow! Yeah, I really would, cool I'm I'm excited now, Joe. I had uh, I tried this back when you guys were doing um, or you know doing the stuff. I don't know a year ago or so. Right. And I had very little success. I mean, I tried and tried and tried. Um, uh, so I so I had very we, little success. So I understand that you guys have have reformulated a little bit, or or am I just an idiot? I don't know. We've Ethan did some really good work on standardizing the process to make it work. Um, We're a little cleaner now. Yeah. So. Okay. He's this particular paper. He's rating at an ISO of around three. Mm-hmm. Um, he was using Dectol stock solution mixed one to two, diluted mm-hmm. one to two. But other kind of developers, I'm sure, work. I've used yeah. them. I and then the citric oh, acid is like thirty milligrams per liter of citric acid. So one of the innovations Ethan came up with was a long citric acid step after the developer. So you're going to do a water rinse after your developer, then citric acid for four minutes. Get that emulsion really saturated with the citric acid. And then okay. you go right, you dump the citric acid and immediately put the 12% peroxide into it. The 12% peroxide is the 40V mm-hmm. uh, hair bleach, yeah. the liquid hair bleach, not the cream. <laughs> not, rinse, the cream. not the cream. But the liquid. I, I did buy it's the cream at one point. <laughs> I remember. And... You basically bleach to completion until yeah. the image is completely just white uh, paper. 
and it, it takes continuous agitation. You can do this in white lights, so it's very convenient. And then after it's totally bleached, you dump the peroxide, rinse with water, and do a uh, sodium sulfite. Uh, rinse just to get any staining, to take care of any potential staining of the image mm -hmm. for a couple of minutes. And when you do the sodium sulfite step, you'll start to see a faint positive image come up because the sodium sulfite is a little base, basic pH. Yeah, I, I mean, so that is not always the case. I think that's because we had a little developer or the Maybe. pH yeah. of the water in my backyard was a little goofy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyways, after, the, after that sodium sulfite, then rinse it with water and then dump your, your developer back into it that you use on the first step, and the positive uh, image immediately comes up in the matter yeah. of a few seconds. Yeah. yeah. The next thing to dial back in is uh, color, but the lens is a little too big to uh, use the filters that I've been using, so I have to yeah. buy some new filter material. I um, My big thing was that I was never getting the image bleached out. That, mm -hmm. I mean... And I was doing four and five minutes, but, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to try it again. I'm ready to try it in color because I have an RA4 kit. Um, so I'm, I am ready for that. So, okay. You need a batch of filters so that you can dial in the color. This is actually something that Joe and I are talking about a yeah. bunch is that it drives us crazy that like <laughs> we go through the effort of, making videos where we explain all of the variables that go into, you know, uh, a process. And there's like, uh, two types of people that are just maddening. One is the one that says, you know, watches the video and then says, okay, what's the filtration and completely disregards the fact that like the batch of paper, the batch of chemistry, the age of chemistry, Color the of temperature the of the room, the amount of UV light all play a part, and there's no just like one filter, right? Just yeah. totally disregards it. And then the even more maddening part <laughs> is the armchair engineer who watched the video presumably and then speculates what the one filter is, completely disregarding the other six factors that goes into this. Like it uh -huh. is not... There is no like one magic filter pack. Like when you buy a pack of color paper, uh, it has a base filtration on that batch, right? Like every uh -huh. you could buy Fuji Crystal Archive twenty different times and get fifteen different, twenty different base filtrations, right? And like the age of your chemistry will affect it. And so I don't know, people, it's it's a process where you got to do a little work, right? You can have, like, a base starting filtration that you used last time, but, like, when you set that process up, you got to shoot two or three pictures. Yeah. And So Ethan and I were talking about this this morning in regards to the peroxide reversal process, and when I posted the video last week, I had a few commenters that were asking, like, so what's the concentration of the citric acid? And it's in the video. It's in the video. And, and, and this commenter did the work to find me on Instagram and send me the same question that could be answered by watching the video. I guess the bigger point I wanted to make is there's a phobia 
of experimentation. People either are afraid to or don't know how to experiment. So in other words, the way Ethan and I refine this process is just starting out with some basic assumptions about paper speed and chemical dilution and processing times and ran tests and then started changing things one step at a time. Mm -hmm. Iteratively making tests and learning from those each of those tests, making changes and then iteratively testing again and refining the process. And I think every photographer or artist who wants to experiment in these kind of processes has to be comfortable with the idea of experimentation is essential to creativity. Uh, it, play, it's like basically the idea of play. In order to be an artist, you have to be comfortable with play, with just experimenting with things. But there's a certain mentality these days of people who just want a formula, like a cookbook formula. I want this many grams of sugar, flour, this, this makes it there, and I want to be able to get the results without the process of playing and experimentation. And yeah. I think that's a real uh, important thing that people need to, to be comfortable with, is don't be afraid to yeah, I mean, I, th I think like the internet really allows us to stand on the shoulders of giants and certainly we do, but like it is then our responsibility to bloodily scratch and claw and climb and, and wriggle our way forward millimeter sure. by millimeter. Uh, by the way, I used to be one of those giants. Get the hell off my back. Okay. <laughs> Not that I have any idea what bring us back in. Okay, great. It's your on. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> there, uh, it was frozen on my screen there uh, for a moment. One of the things that I wanted to, I, I really wanted to, I'm going to back up to the bellows thing for a moment. And because if we are, um, it, we're looking at options, we're looking at, at, at different things that we can possibly do. One of the things that I was thinking about with the bellows is if you can clamp together sections of bellows, then you wouldn't necessarily have to haul around the big bellows all the time unless you were going to do a big project. And I think that that may make this a little bit more practical um, and it may make it a little bit easier to build each section. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I see where you're going. Uh, mm -hmm. Joe and I had this argument uh, last week, discussion, and I was having this. No. Well, you're never going to win because I am actually doing the work. Uh, <laughs> so I do what I want. And, uh, so, and, and I want to point out that in the Bronx, argument and discussion are synonymous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, uh, my girlfriend is uh, a good Midwestern girl, and my buddy Bennett and I are, you know, loud, arguing, screaming Jews. And she she gets, uh, she's like, why are you yelling at each other? We're like, no, 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 we're not angry. <laughs> we just scream. Uh, this is how we figure things out. <laughs> like, right. Calm down? It's an extra, extra dimension of information yeah. at the dynamic range. Of yeah. So, so, so since you're building it, that's the way. No, you no, 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 no. Okay. Okay. So what's wrong I'm, with the way I'm, that I suggest? There's nothing wrong, wrong in a studio camera. So yeah. I actually had this conversation this morning with Dawei Khrushchev. 
uh, uh-huh. or Instagram, and he was suggesting a couple of similar things. So if this were a studio camera, first of all, I'd probably build a sliding box camera for simplicity and ease of use. Uh, sure. But even if not, I would have probably at least one central standard and have a square bellows to yeah. the center standard and a hard taper on the front, uh, which would make a lot of these things um, much easier. Like, So on a camera this size, generally you put a bunch of tabs, which we have to glue on later on the bellows, to pull, cinch it back so it doesn't droop into the light path. Um, sure. And then there's like stiffness issues as well with the frame when it's fully extended to seven feet long. And, you know, those could be corrected in a number of ways, all of which make it bigger and more complicated and heavier. So it becomes more expensive. And the big part about it is less the expense than I, you know, this isn't a field camera that you go take out in the field, but this is a field camera that I put in the back of my truck and I take somewhere. And so... I refuse to make this camera weigh any more than 65 pounds. Um, And so there's things like additional bellow frames, additional standard frames, (laughs) um, cranks and thicker rails. Like there are things that would make this a, there are things that would make this camera better at certain things, but all of those would come at the expense of others, right? And so kind of the crazy part about making such a big camera is like when I started, you know, really working hard on this two and a half months ago, three months ago, you know, I built a four by five. I know the dimensions of this thing. This will be a quick project to bang out. I'll just scale it up. But, you know, if a four by five weighs five pounds and this is 125 times the volume, I can't make a 600 pound camera. I can't even really make a hundred pound camera and comfortably move it. You could if it had wheels and a handlebar. Right. I mean, I, I could if I had a 5,000 square foot studio that I was exclusively shooting. Right. I've been thinking about an alternative bellows that would make sense for this, which would be made of, uh, imagine uh, like a stack of donuts that are inflatable. And you just have a little valving system. We talked can, about this. Inf- Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Pneumatic bellows. So right. Joe was, was real into inflatable structures in like what the 70s, yeah. 80s. Yeah. Um, and, 70s. and actually like an inflatable bellows is a really interesting idea. I'm not, I mean, I, I think I just succeeded in building a really beautiful bellows of a standard construction with super durable and light. Uh, materials, so I think I'm going to go down that route rather than yeah. trying to figure out how to make pneumatics. Ethan, you don't have to. Def- you don't have to defend your decisions. It's your camera. We're looking at other options. So right. one of the other options is if you were to have standard front standard to back standard, if you were to run a line, you could do it like a tent. Yeah. Um, so you know if you so we will have that line in fact to you know so uh if the bellows set so on studio cameras again they have that that center or or a copy camera they have that center standard Uh, on field cameras larger than eight by ten and sometimes eight by ten they have tabs at the top so you run a center line to cinch it back or to hold it up to and and i think like doing like a tent 
rather than a center line, you could have side lines and just have like sort of a bunched, yeah. you know, but it's, it's yeah. less elegant and more annoying to fold. And as well, it there's also, fold, there's, it a, itself. there's also it's the slinky like, model. The slinky model would be another, another approach. Laura yes. walked in here and said, <laughs> you, she looked at like all the trouble I've been going through. And she said, you know, those, terrible laundry hampers that we had in college <laughs> yeah. with the big spring and they just popped open or like yeah. a, a self self-writing tent right or tunnels why don't you when do I'm that kid, we had tunnels that were yeah, yeah yeah the ones that always broke and the the coil spring came out and like got in your hand crawling through as a kid <laughs> of course no 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 for me it was the it was the people who did the slip and slide with the sheet of plastic and left the scissors underneath the slip and slide. <laughs> I cannot look at a slip and slide to this day. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Well, you could do the Navy version of the slip and slide, which is during the crossing the equator ceremony. Sure. You go from a polywog to a shellback. You fill the slip and slide with the food garbage and make people crawl through it. Uh, oh, lovely! That's what they do. <laughs> Did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, okay. yeah. So I think there's actually something to not for this camera, but to the idea of an inflatable bellows or a spring bellows, right? I think um, even an inflatable stiffener on the top of the bellows. Yeah. Sure, sure. That would support the regular bellows below it. The yeah. the issue with a lot of these is is like. The bellows, by its nature, needs to change dimensions, and um, getting that to work with uh, an inflatable rib becomes difficult. It makes more sense with one of those big spiral springs, but you know, I just, I just did it the tradition. Like part of it is, I got to sell this thing at some point, and I don't want it to look like, like uh, the camera dactyl laundry hamper. Yeah. Right, exactly. But but you know, I think those are I I would love to see somebody make a big uh sprung bellows. I, I think that's yeah. a very interesting good idea. Like and the then there's another an, another structure, you know, the way that yurts uh are made of crisscross sticks. That's another yes. like a geodesic know, oh. almost. Yeah, that's yeah. another nice telescoping mechanism. Or like the Dr. Seuss, you know, hand uh, that reaches out on the... Or or uh, mm -hmm. shaving mirrors, you know, those crisscross yeah. extension devices. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Okay, well, I think that that's... I, 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 you know, we're not even paying attention to the fact that you have this amazing self-developing back. We're just talking about the the bellows and solving the bellows issue or giving the different options. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm looking at that back and I'm not seeing how uh, we, you know, how you could do anything different uh, because that looks that that I think is the the killer app of the killer app camera. Um, yeah. And, and and I'm looking forward to. Uh, being able to test out the four by five version of that. So, um, yeah. So w w at what point do you, what more needs to be done? Yeah. Obviously yep. need to, um, what, wh what's the development that needs to be done at this point that you can Great foresee? Question. Really um, good question. So, yeah. you know, we tried to think about every, 
possible problem. And the the issue is like Joe and I shot those pictures last Tuesday and I was up till I, I worked through the weekend and I was up till uh, one last night doing this to produce one rev of this camera. So usually the, the thing that I do is like, I just build a camera on the printers, like the homunculus or the Bronco pan. It went through like seven, eight things of like the, Design time that's, was long. The production time was that's quick. number three right, right. there. So, yeah. yeah, and so you'll easily get to seven and perfect it. But the issue yeah. is, if it takes you an entire week of seventeen-hour days to build a thing, um, seven versions are. I was I was ready to like just lay on the ground and cry yesterday around ten thirty. I had been yeah. going for thirteen hours and I was covered in glue and I had been doing that all week. And so, yeah. anyway, I put out one rev. I think it should fix all of, like, certainly it will fix that little light leak. Certainly these bellows are not going to be as saggy. Um, there's a couple other, like, minor issues. Like, if we wanted, with a little bit of tape, you know, we could have fixed the light leak. And we were able, in a very janky way, with elastic cord and bulldog clips to get the bellows out of the way. Like, we could shoot with that, but it wasn't super nice. This one, I think, is going to be pretty nice, and I think it will get some minor tweaks and new parts over the course of the next month, uh, you know, but I don't think it's going to get a full rev. I hope it doesn't get a full rev where everything gets rebuilt. I, I hope, like, oh, you know, I wish this geometry was a little different. I'll cut apart, you know. I still have to make black knobs so that I it's sellable, you know, but I think um, when we get off this podcast, Joe and I have to eat brunch, uh, and then tear that camera down almost entirely and then build the new camera, which I glued all the parts up. So that's, that's pretty easy. Now it's just screwing together. Um, and then we're going to shoot with it tonight. If there's no major problems, then I'm just going to shoot with it for a week and, uh, see, you know, it'll just be sort of like ergonomic changes at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. so I want to get it into the a position where if I sold it like that, I would be proud of it uh, by the time I go to the West Coast. And then I will, you know, take it up the West Coast and rent it to people or let people shoot with it and, uh, you know, see what... I, there's nothing like using a camera for a month to figure out what would make it better, right? Like, Are you going to make it up here? I am. I hope. When? I mean, unless I get caught by the fires... Um, I am thinking early September, but like, you know, I'll let you know when I actually get on the road. (laughs) Oh, that's perfect. Um, it should be nice. You, you, the fire, you'll, you'll make it past fires in September, I think. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I had a rough time. Just run the windshield wipers. Getting to the Bay area from here. And it wasn't like smoke wasn't unbearable. This was 10, 15 years ago or more actually. But the problem was that th- there were there was nowhere to stay. There were firemen in every single mm-hmm. campground, motel room, whatever. Well, I'll just you know, stay inside full. my camera. <laughs> exactly. There we go. <laughs> Did you make the camera yeah. flame retardant? Um, uh, so, Ethan, um, where I am to where you are is twenty five or twenty six hours, depending on whether I go through. Amarillo or Abilene. Um, So uh, I can be there tomorrow 
at, um, well, actually, I'll lose a couple of hours, right? Because I'll be crossing into two different time zones. So I'll be there by lunch. Uh-huh. And so um, yeah, I'll, I'll be the subject of taking pictures. Uh, uh, are you well, you're volunteering to model? Is that the I'm volunteering yeah. to model. We, we right. got a date at the club <laughs> at 6 o'clock tonight. <laughs> I'd have to fly. Yeah, you can hop on a plane. <laughs> no, the thing is, like, I wouldn't make you come out here just yeah. yet because there's a good chance that it would have some annoying failures or, like, <laughs> little little things we want to fix. Let's – uh, I I really just want to get it – like, we got the process dialed in. We got the back working. The camera is so – it's like a thing so we've done a million times and built beautiful yeah. cameras. Like, it just – it. It just needs a couple more revisions, which normally would take a day or two, and now could just eat months. Everything is magnified well, this, with cameras at this. Yeah, point. scale's a problem. I know. I told you my before. My sister worked on, ran one of those giant Polaroids for years, and they took it on the road a couple times, and then they just said, it, it just every single time it was a constant stream of repairs because yeah. everything was too big and not quite robust enough but i want to say that there, there is a backpacking version of this camera eventually you're going to get to it and it will mean you sleep in it because the bellows will have to be your tent uh -huh. and the pack frame will have to be the developing tank the good and news it can, i think <laughs> i think you can build that nick it can be made out of red tent material because you're shooting you're shooting paper right Right, and you'll be it. You'll be the. You'll have to cook in the in the lens. That'll be your cook pot. And your yeah. pneumatic uh, inflatable will be your your yeah. sleeping bag. Uh huh. We'll call it the Billabong. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, by the way, if I go through uh, Las Cruces, it's twenty eight hours. Las Cruces so, is nice. It smells better uh, than uh, Amarillo. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, so yeah, so it's a date. Um, oh, wait, I want to go through Santa Fe. So, no, that. you go to Santa Fe from Albuquerque. No, no. If I just take a little, oh, add in an hour. Um, <laughs> you don't, you don't want to go through I-70 on, yeah, doesn't make sense. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, well, we're looking forward to um, a report, in, we will report. Uh, when we record our next episode. Um, I think our next episode is going to be for something much smaller. Yeah, and, I mean, we couldn't even fit any part of this really wholly in the video frame. I was unprepared. Yeah. So here's what here's what we need to do for the next time is whoever is not operating the camera uh, take a bunch of phone pictures of the operation of the camera and we'll do a presentation. Yeah. Um, or, or you know, by next week, maybe there will be a Joe Van Cleef video on YouTube of the thing. But okay. we will probably see. Take some stills too. Yeah, definitely drop the stills in. Um, you know, when you're holding up the photo, do the hold up you know where it shows the scale of the person mm -hmm. um so we get an idea otherwise it's just a photograph right yeah you know this this is camera is big enough that you should just include a gopro mast as part of the camera design you know that will just yeah. record like the that. process 
like a, an air, you know, an antenna like from a car. You stick. Take, yeah. take it up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Are we ready uh, to wrap things up? We I got think a we're ready to well, wrap things up. I have, a, I have a couple. Yeah, okay. I do have something. All right, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to show wanted to show Ethan that this is all ready to go for uh, backpacking into Glacier Peak. Oh, awesome. So he is oh, holding man. up a, a, a homunculus. Uh, tell yeah, us about what you have done well, to make it ready. Well, it's got a light meter now and a viewfinder. And I've decided on the 50 millimeter lens and a six by seven back. Okay. And I have a big pile of 120 film. And the other thing is it all goes into this little, this little, uh, oh, wow. Padded dry bag, little padded yeah. dry bag that drop fits perfectly into my backpack. Um, so, and I can just whip the camera out of there and use it. So that's pretty exciting. Damn. I can't wait to see those pictures. I wish I was yeah. going to Glacier Peak this week as well. Yeah, well, I haven't been out in the mountains in a while, so I'm very excited about it. And uh, I'll be bringing the, my giant digital camera as well so I can uh, take pictures of everything. That I'm going to use a lot for panoramics, I think. Cool. Okay. Um... And then, Joe, this is my favorite uh, camera that was built using the same types of materials as your... Yes. <laughs> your stuff and i want to say this is version one and it's perfect i did add a couple things but mm -hmm. none of this iteration crap yeah <laughs> i like it <laughs> anyway well I, I started with a lot already built there yeah um okay um anybody have any shout outs anybody want to um share anything yeah hey thanks yeah. to jeff perry for uh all of the secret sauce in building materials <laughs> okay okay sounds good um and at that point uh ethan's connection dropped and so our recording dropped so what we're gonna do at this point is uh thanks uh, to Joe Van Cleve, um, uh, check out his YouTube channel. It's a really great YouTube channel. And we're going to say thanks, Robbie, uh, for uh, recording, composing, recording, and allowing us to use the theme music. Thanks, Robbie.